0: this week on Writers Inc.
1: With every book, it's always your first time in some way. And I think it's the funny thing about being a writer that you have that delusion of like, this time I know exactly what I'm doing, like this time. And then you're like, no, I don't. Like what the, like, it's it's just perpetually going back to that feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then remembering that, oh, right, this is part of it.
0: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.B. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc.
2: Hi, it's Christine Daigle.
3: Patrick O'Donnell.
4: J.P. Reinflush. Kevin Tomlinson.
5: And this is J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writers Inc. So I'm like combing through the news, trying to find something to talk about. And there's literally, like I've got tons of stuff going on, which I kind of shared some of it with you guys uh, yesterday, um, but I can't talk about any of it publicly. So, but what I, I I did want to mention is this ITW town hall that we had the other day on our favorite topic, AI. Um, we interviewed a, take a, a copyright shot. attorney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> take a shot. Everybody gets to take a get shot. <laughs> class out. We interviewed a copyright attorney. And, and I really think, especially after hearing this guy, a lot of this is going to come down to copyright. Um. You know, because the gist of it is you know, if you read the actual copyright law here in the US and it's different everywhere so like this is you know, a complete you know, cluster F if you go outside the country um, but here in the US in order to obtain a copyright the text has to be written by a human they actually use that language in there so that would have to be changed and it would take like an act of God to actually change something in the copyright language it's not an easy thing to do um, so if, if you were to actually use from what this guy said if you use AI to generate a portion of your text um, when you file for your copyright you actually have to identify you know what portions were written by the AI what was written by the human um, which means you basically own let's say 90% of your copyright 10% is not copyrightable because it's written by an AI or 80 20 or whatever the 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 breakdown is. Um, But the second you skew from 100% being human, it creates a ton of problems. Um, And like he pointed this out, I didn't even think about it, but like in my actual contract, my publishing contracts, it stipulates that I'm 100% owner of the content that they're publishing on my behalf. Um, You know, so I I immediately wouldn't be able to submit that. Um, I checked on a couple different sites where you you can upload text, um, like Amazon, stuff like that. They do ask if you own the copyright. Um, Nobody seems to ask for the actual registration statement for it. Um, But I've got a feeling like that's where a lot of this is really going to play out because, you know, if let's say Amazon just decides one day that, you know, if you don't own 100% of the copyright, it can't be on our site anymore. You know, you might have five, six books up there where you used AI to, to help you out. And, you know, they may have to come down. Um, and a lot of these companies seem to be using, uh, you know, there's tons of tech coming out to basically identify AI content, which is the other half of this. And, and the funny thing is they use AI in order to find the AI, you know, they rely on GPT-3, GPT-4 uh, or whatever. Um but they're very accurate. So if you drop a, a paragraph of text in there that you wrote yourself, it's gonna give you, you know, point zero zero one percent is AI. It's you know some ridiculously small number. Um anything actually coming out of the AI it's you know it's sixty, seventy, eighty percent. Um, because it's literally asking itself, did I write this? you know, so it can tell. Um, so, you know, the copyright office, you know, a lot of these websites and things are going to, they're going to start defaulting, I think, to this, the software. So they're going to be able to find it. Um, so from my standpoint, I'm just, I'm, I'm staying away until this all plays out. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm not, I, I don't even have it on my yeah. screen anymore. No, I, mean, I not,
2: think that's the takeaway is don't use the AI right now. Cause it's yeah. just too much of a risk.
4: Yep. I'm not, uh, I have no intention of using the AI to, to write anything for me, but, I, I feel like there's just too many question marks anyway. You know, I mean, okay, the AI is going to scan, and it's unless it's keeping a record of what it wrote and comparing it against it, there's, n- there's nothing that it could use against you. Like, if I say I wrote that, how are you going to prove I didn't? And that's what it is really going to come down to is... You know, I guess if they've got automated flags and things, this will become another nightmare for everybody is what I'm saying. Amazon is going to make this a nightmare for everybody because Amazon just puts in the bare minimum uh, to take care of problems like this. So if you get flagged, whether you used AI or not, they're going to be able to leverage that to use it as an excuse to not publish your book. That's what I see coming. Uncle Kevin's predictions.
3: (laughs) Wise words, Uncle Kevin.
5: Yeah. I mean, the way the software works, you know, it basically identifies a percentage, um, you know, so all these companies, you know, so if Amazon decides that they're going to set a threshold, they're going to say if it's, you know, 30 percent or higher, we're not going to allow it or we're going to red flag it or whatever. Um, and then it's yeah. going to be up to you as the author to prove that they're wrong um, or, you know, maybe. How do you do that? It. You don't. That's the thing. So like Right. But like I have noticed in playing with these various, you know, the various software programs that, you know, if you put in text that you actually wrote yourself, you know, th- they're less than 1%, you know? So like the yeah. only real safeguard is to actually write the text yourself. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a weird problem. I mean, cause like for me personally, like I write because I love to write, you know, like I've been doing this for years. I was doing it for much longer, way before people started paying right. me to, to do it. Um, and I will continue, you know, if people stop paying me, I will continue to write every single day. Um, so the real problem that, you know, is going to come out of all this are those you know the people that are trying to game the system, the ones that want to write a book in five minutes and put it up on Amazon to make a little extra cash. Um, that have no interest in the actual craft; they just want to make some money. Those are the ones who are going to you know really gum up the works, and they're the ones that these various companies and entities are going to have to try to, to filter out. Um, and Amazon will have to filter it out because you know at some point people are going to be able to throw up a book a minute, a book every five minutes, <laughs> right. whatever it is. Um, and even Amazon, their servers are not going to be able to handle that kind of data coming in. They're going to need some type of safeguard in place. To To protect against it um so crazy stuff but if if you want to listen to it um go we'll we'll put another link in the show notes um it's about an hour or so long Um, basically me and Adam, adam handy uh just talking to a
6: copyright attorney interesting stuff um jp what's in the news all right so um Uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, we talked about a Texas County library uh, bringing books back in after they were removed. Uh, There's an update to that story. And the County Commission's court is meeting today as we're recording, April 13th, to discuss the possibility of closing that library. Uh, So I know that the American Library Association and the Unite Against Book Bans are working together with the library uh, to support those at-risk workers, etc. But I felt like this was an important update just to talk about because this situation is not a self-contained issue. Uh, We continue to see legislators banning books and targeting libraries. I know that there's a budget that was passed in Missouri that has completely defunded public libraries. So I think that this is important to have on our radar as authors because I think that we uh, can be voices and um, places of support for public libraries, for bookstores. So uh, I think it's important for us to know.
5: You know, it makes me think of prohibition and how well outlawing alcohol actually stopped the use of alcohol. Like pe- people kept drinking yeah. like the next day. It didn't change yep. anything. It yeah. just, you know, what's going to happen here is those books will move to another location. Uh, you know, there, there's always going to be access. I think. It, 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 this is the wrong way to approach the problem. Yep, it's the wrong I, way. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, you know, banning the content isn't going to change anything. I think, you know, again, I think we need to drill down to our own personal level. level. If we want to ban it in our own house, you know, if we don't want our kids to look at something until they're a certain age, whatever, let, let's do that at the parental level. I, I don't need Senator, you know, blow, you know, this guy, that guy, whoever to, to make these decisions. So is there going to be book speakeasies? Is that what's going to happen?
2: Yeah, the book speakeasies. Uh, we're going to start one covering okay. some banned books. very good. You have to have a secret Mac. Every time we mention AI, and, you, you know, take a shot. Like, That's yeah,
4: it. There we go. I'm going to start the band van, you know? <laughs> Just drive from county to county with my van full of banned books.
6: I think really, though, when we start talking about, like, defunding public libraries like that impacts such a large group of people who would otherwise not have access to books yeah. and so yes. it's just maddening to me to continue to hear this stuff
4: what makes me sad is that this this is the uh, uh my neighbor county here in texas where i'm in williamson county this is like right next to us as my in-laws live in this county
5: so this is so. this is your fault You're, you're in that front row raising your hand. We're going to blame Kevin.
3: (laughs) Uh,
4: We're going to blame Kevin's in-laws
3: all of
5: this.
1: (laughs) Honestly, like
5: here, like, you know, like we've got a very small library here on the island that where I live and we've got, there's 900 residents. So like, you know, funding is a huge deal here. Like I know exactly what the dollar amount going to the library is. I know what going to the school is, all that kind of stuff. Um, We would raise the money ourselves. I think if they were to actually try to shut the library down, if they cut off funding, we would find some way to augment that, that income, um, You know, if if we, and and again, like I may not like the
6: content that's in there, but I
5: like the fact that it is allowed to be in there, and I don't want to see it go away.
6: Exactly. Uh, So next up in the news, um, Amazon is closing their UK-based online shop, Book Depository. Uh, So this is closing down the twenty-sixth of April of this year, after almost two decades of being open in business. so I know that Book Depository was founded in 2004 by a former Amazon employee, and uh, Amazon has been in the process of slashing thousands of jobs this year. Uh, so it looks like this is another one of those things that they're getting rid of this year.
5: I don't even know what this is. Have you guys ever heard of this
6: before? Never. I've heard of it. Um, I don't know. So- when you use like Ingram Spark, uh, if you're doing self-publishing, this is one of the locations that your book can show up in. It's probably the same for Draft2Digital. I just haven't used it for that. Um, but uh, so
5: this I've is just another place. So I've used it but
2: place. not known it. So <laughs> there you <Okay>. go.
5: Because <laughs> I mean, A- Amazon is, is great at trying new things and then they're horrible at actually telling anybody that they're trying new things. Um, you know, we, we had a store not too, not too far from here. Um, it was, I think it was called four and up and it was basically Amazon books that had, you know, a rating of, of four or better um and it didn't matter who the publisher was if it had a good rating you, you know you could typically find it in there it was a great store i loved going in there but like nobody knew about it um i've been in mm-hmm. one of their grocery stores where you don't have to check out you basically just load up your cart and walk right out the front door and somehow they know exactly what you took with you um fantastic stuff but like you don't see a whole lot of that in the press like they really need to get better at the the marketing side of this they're they're great at certain things but horrible at you know some of these business ventures
6: definitely last in the news James Patterson lashes out at the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, So our good friend James uh, is frustrated with his latest nonfiction book. It didn't make the New York Times bestseller, um, but he had all the data that showed him that it was outselling most of those authors that were uh, being featured through the book scan data. Um, We do know that New York Times bestseller list is curated. It's not driven by raw sales. Um, And the disappearance of that U.S. Today bestseller list is kind of a a blow uh, because of this. So I know you have some more information on this if you'd like to share.
5: Um, not really. I haven't talked to Jim since this came out. Um, I, I think Jim might need to write a couple of more books just to keep himself busy so that he's not focused on some <laughs> of these other things. It seems like he's got free time. Like, I don't know how you write 30 books a, a year and, and still have free time. Um, but he, he's again, he's doing us a huge favor with this. The New York Times list has been this, you know, crazy black hole. Nobody really knows quite how the books get on there. Um, I can tell you years ago, the New York Times would send out a list, you know, once a week to bookstores uh, and they would say, these are the you know, the books we feel will be on the list next week. Um, and they would list, you know, five or 10 yeah. or whatever they felt was going to be there. And you had the ability to write something in as a bookstore owner. You could you could pencil in a name. Um, that process went online. Um, but they ignore a ton of stuff. They ignore Amazon sales. You know, like I know Dean Kuhn's pretty well and he's on Thomas and Mercer now. You know, he topped the New York Times bestseller list literally with every title for most of his career, um, at least the the latter half of it. Um, The second he went to Thomas and Mercer, it's total crickets on the New York Times list. They don't count any of those. But... We know, I mean, you can tell just by looking at the charts, he is selling an insane number of books, um, you know, but they, they don't count it. Um, from my standpoint with Forsaken, I ran into this. I had a week where yeah. I sold a little over 14,000 copies, um, which was enough to, to clinch like maybe the top 10, you know, 11, 12, somewhere in that range on the New York Times list for that particular week. Um, you can pull the book stat up, you know, that, that's the stats. You can see what everybody is selling at. So I knew where I should have been, um, but they didn't count it, you know, as an indie author because the bulk of those sales came from Amazon. The USA Today list, in my opinion, was the best one because it just relied strictly on 100% sales. Um, which is, you know, if we're creating a bestseller list, that that's what it should be. Um, in Jim's case, you know, like this was a, it's a fantastic book. It, you know, it's about cops. It's an inside, you know, interviews with cops and situations that they've been in. Um, it's extremely well written. It's written by the the same guy that um, Black Hawk Down was based on. Um, he also wrote uh, Walk in My Combat Boots, which is another one. I mean, he just, because he walked in, he worked in that world, he's able to get inside the heads of these people. When he does an interview, like they can, you know, he can talk their language. So he pulls a lot of detail out. Um, and, you know, when you, when you read, This one, the one about cops, not all the stories are good. Not all of them are bad, um, but it's it's true, you know, like and I think it's an important thing for people to see and and read because, you know, you know, cops get a bad rap, you know, and they're out there doing a tough job, um, you know, and this gives you a a nice insight into what their life their lives are are really like. And it shouldn't be shut out, you know, for, for
4: the reasons that it was. Yeah. I kind of wonder how, how relevant is the New York Times list at this point, though? Like, are people, are readers really using this list to to determine what they read next?
5: I, I think they do. You know, a lot of people open up that paper on Sunday morning. They look at the list and say, OK, that's what I'm going to read next. Um, they walk into a Barnes & Noble, you know, and, and you know, they see that as being the popular books. That's what everybody else yeah. is reading. You know, like the, the New York Times is basically... You know, they're curating that list and, and, you know, giving them something to to work with that's manageable instead of the, you know, 10,000 titles that came out that particular week, you're looking at 15. Um, But, you know, I think it needs to be based on something other than what it is. It shouldn't be, you know based on human opinions. It it should be based strictly on the stats.
4: You know, this is what's selling. This is what's not selling. I agree. And, you know, they exclude self-publishing.
2: Yeah, that's it, right? When indie authors are are going, oh, I want to hit the New York Times bestsellers list. uh, Is that a reasonable goal? Because as we said, it is a curated list. It's not a sales number list. So as an indie author, I mean, you might have a 1% chance to hit that list, but it's really difficult to hit the New York Times bestseller.
4: Yeah, you you, uh, actually, I as far as I know, you can't get on the New York Times list as an indie author now.
5: Yeah, no, you, you can. It's just it's very difficult as an indie just because of the places that indies tend to sell. You know, they, they're selling at Barnes & Noble online. They're selling, you know, primarily at Amazon. Um, and the New York Times list is curated mainly from bookstores, you know, not necessarily even Barnes & Noble, but the the independent bookstores, you know, have a huge say in it. Um, and one of the factors that they currently use is the diversification of your your sales numbers. So you have to have right. a large percentage coming from indie stores, a large percentage coming from stores, large percentage coming from this, coming from that. It needs to be a mix of everything, and most indie authors just don't target that that wide. They don't cast that wide of a net. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think Dean Koontz is probably the biggest example of that because he's technically not an indie author. He's on Thomas and Mercer. You know, you can find his books in, in bookstores because of who he is, um, but he's still not able to make the list right now at this point, even though he, he's selling in all those different venues, just not at a you know the ratio that that they agree with.
2: Right? Do you think that has to do with booksellers because you know they get. Uh, These huge catalogs from different publishers, the big four or five or whatever it is, you know, seven, eight hundred books every three months they have to go to and and decide what to buy for their store. So, I mean, when you're already having that much competition just with uh, trad titles... It's got to be really difficult for indies to, to diversify into bookstores, I would imagine.
5: Well, it's it's even beyond the catalogs. They, you know, the publishers actually hire people to walk into the stores, you know, to to basically, you know, to, here's here's our catalog, but in the catalog, these are the five you really want to look at, um, mm. you know, so like it, you know, indie authors can't even get in that catalog, let alone get on the list of you know that's being mentioned when they come through that door. Right. Um, so it's a it's a difficult thing to to compete with. I mean, you really need sales numbers behind you. You know, as an indie author, if you're selling big enough numbers, the stores, will carry you get your fans to walk into a store and request you The more often that happens the more often you're going to see your title start to show up there um, you know you kind of have to back the word a little bit
4: this episode is brought to you by master writer master writer is a powerful collection of writing tools and references assembled in one easy to use program included are word families phrases synonyms rhymes definitions figures of speech pop culture, a searchable Bible of intensifiers, and a unique collection of intense descriptive words. Why well, struggle to find the right word when you can have all the possibilities in an instant? While a computer can't compete with the mind and imagination of a writer, the mind can't compete with the word choices that Master Writer will give you in an instant. When the two work together, great things happen. Check it out today at MasterWriter.com.
2: Okay, so JD, who's up this week?
4: Oh, uh, this one's going to be fun. We've got Carolyn Kepnes
5: coming on. She's the author of the books behind the the Netflix show "You," um, and her latest title is called "For You and Only You," and releases uh, April twenty fifth. So here she is, Carolyn Kepnes.
2: So you have a new book out, "For You and Only You," the fourth book in the Joe Goldberg series. Yes. Yeah. Something
1: like. I can't the math, but the way each one is like around 400 pages. And then, you know, with writing, it's all rewriting. So there are a whole like it's that moment of like, oh, my God, I have written so much about this, (laughs) like so much because there's all that gets cut and redone. And yeah.
2: Yeah. And it's always been kind of very literary focused. But this book is really examining a lot about the writing process, what it means to be a writer. There are a lot of contemporary writers in it.
1: Yeah. It felt like, you know, it started with the pandemic and I was in, you know, home, like we're all in our own situation. And I was starting to think like, people were like, how would Joe handle this? And I'm like, oh my God, he'd be one of those people who's like making the sourdough, getting it all done, kidnapping someone and getting away with it and writing his own book. So that I went with that of feeling like part of his survival is his like amazing selfishness, which sometimes a lot of us could, stand to be a little bit more that way of like get getting our business done. <laughs> and I went from there of thinking about like how I there's when he says that the reader becomes a writer, I feel like that's a lot of his way of thinking that like he's making that divorce in his head, like a well-adjusted person understands that like, no, the reader, you're a reader, you're a writer, like there's not an end point, you know. <laughs> and I, as I went there and put him in the room with those writers and felt them all come to life. I just it was it was incredible. Like it was a very loud, like intense experience of, yes, the writing those workshops was a, a light of my life. I hope they are fun to read,
2: yeah, they were. And but I kept thinking, you know, like, how do you write about this without getting into your own head and messing up your own writing?
1: What was that? I don't like? know, And I mean, that's where I'm like, you read the book, like maybe maybe you can't. <laughs> like it got to that point, yeah, were and also keeping all of their books in my head and kind of like right like going off and like especially sarah beth like when i was born my parents my mom was out of it and my dad named me sarah so it's this like joke in my family that my middle name is beth that i'm like sarah beth so i just felt very close to her for a lot of reasons and i loved coming up with her titles and then i'm like kind of spinning off and starting to write one of those and then getting back into my head and then into joe's head yeah so i mean i don't know i feel like it's long there's a lot there i had fun i hope you like read it with this, like, not like that you have to read it all in a day thing. Cause I feel like it's a busy, loud crowd in there, you know? Yeah. It was a
2: lot of fun. And Joe's book title was perfect. That was the perfect book title for him.
1: Yes. That felt right. And yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And one of your character has
1: real literal imposter syndrome. (laughs) Yes. I, I mean, I think again, like there was a lot of online time and I loved seeing everyone like in the, like putting them all like Joe bringing Joe bringing out the worst in everyone and wanting to see the worst in everyone the way that like if someone gives you a taste it's pretty fucking appealing and then suddenly you're doing it more and more and that's how I felt it of like that even being around Joe is bringing out everything that he wants to think of these people as in them and that's the magic to me of a of a person who like is always in the right, you know, and who just like, if someone expects bad from you, then it's easier to do bad. It's all kind of set up there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it was really interesting for me as a writer, just reading it. Cause there are a lot of questions that I've had, like, you know, in my own process. And I think we all go through this when we're writing. So you have a writer that loves to write and another character who loves to have written (laughs) yes and it just got me thinking about that I'm curious
1: do you uh love one more than the other do you love both I don't know I'm curious about you too like I feel like I love to write too much and it's not always the best way to be because it's that you like just spewing it out on and on and on without necessarily knowing what it is and then like 50 pages like oh oh now is when I'm supposed to start writing like I think thinking is so important before writing but writing is so fun once you're in it it's all flowing and it, it all, all can look like something and kind of trick you into thinking like hey that's you know that's a scene that makes sense and then a week later like oh no like that was fun to do but it doesn't mean that it's it like what about you are you a are you a love writer or a love having written
2: I love the process but I also of course love when something's finished but I was just thinking about can you be a successful writer if you don't love the process so that was something that I was pondering this week.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly it. And that's where like I with Wonders book, I felt like it is kind of going against the grain of everything that's like in our ether as far as like let people into your process, do it, get it done, like present yourself, show yourself like that. It's all changed so much. Like I I was in my 20s in the 90s when my idea of a writer was someone where he didn't even know what they looked like and or what the what section it was in in the bookstore because I found it in some bin on the street and felt special that no one knew about it but me and now we just live in a very different world so I loved the idea of this woman who's like loves to be writing this book privately secretly and Joe kind of pushing against that and then of course the minute she kind of embraces that idea of like oh it could be nice to be to have written and to be out there he's like well that makes you a phony (laughs) (laughs) that is really interesting because
2: yeah I think you know there used to be this real perception of a writer as being the solitary person alone in the woods in their cabin typing on their keyboard and that's not the way it is anymore especially with like social media and all these author communities and it's not really such a solitary pursuit anymore
1: yeah and that's where it was I feel like Joe being someone who's so old schooled and rigid like the same way in you the way he was like collecting these typewriters it's like he's going to hold on to that idea and be kind of disparaging of anyone who enjoys any sense of community when really he's just like hurt because he thought that these people would all be his best friends. And it's like, dude, no, like they're not like you. They didn't, you know, they're not here because they murdered people and got away with it. Like, and (laughs) I think it's that outsider feeling. And that's where people connect with it, with him over the years. Like it doesn't make, make you a murderer to sometimes feel like you don't speak the language or you can't get there. And that was the, what felt right in this book of like, his profound social awkwardness after the pandemic when all of us i think are a little nuts like yeah for sure
2: <laughs> i love that so in your book one character says that when it comes to writing praise
1: is poison do you think that's true can praise put too much pressure on a writer i mean i feel like like i've had those moments when i was younger and like i would get a compliment and then run with it hardcore like I remember I did, I did that thing in college where I had done something with a little art in it, you know, like a little poetry where like the indentation and someone said something nice about it. So then I do like a whole fucking like indentation art. Oh, look at it. You have to step back to read it. You know, and I feel like we all like that's part of growing as a writer. And it's the same way that like I still have this rejection letter from Seventeen magazine that was like a turning point in a good way because it was handwritten. It was, they named the story. She was so thoughtful. I could tell she read it. And it was like, you, you know, you're good at this. Like, I want to see what you do next. And it was like this moment of, oh, right. Like, no, criticism gives you purpose. Praise tells you, and it's all downhill from here on some level. <laughs> and I feel that's like part of the human condition. Like, it's not just about writing, but I think that's also where it was fun to take Joe and put him in this position of being very aware that, like, he- He's Joe, so he only wants this book to be out there if the whole world is like, oh my God, you're a genius. You're J.D. Salinger, you're the best thing ever. Also, your girlfriend is too. She's just as good as you. Everyone else is dead. It's like an exaggerated form of what all our modern culture with everything being rated, discussed, like analyzed, graded kind of puts in us a little bit. So if like there are moments of that where, yeah, praise can be poison, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. Like a little poison also makes you stronger.
2: That's true, right? Yeah. And it was very funny because he did want to be the J.D. Salinger, but maybe would have sold out to write some erotica or something. (laughs) (laughs) So you've, you know, had quite a lot of success. Do you ever feel pressure about having to do as well or better than your last book?
1: I think, I mean, yeah, it's like, that's the wonderful nightmare of like, And and especially with this book where it was so much about writing and it's my first time writing a fourth book in a series. Like it's like all, with every book it's always your first time in some way. And I think it's the funny thing about being a writer that you have that delusion of like this time I know exactly what I'm doing, like this time. And you're like, no, I don't like what. The, like, it's just perpetually going back to that feeling of like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then remembering that, oh, right, this is part of it. Like it's the discovery. It's the creativity. Like to me, like there are those panting days where you fly and you wind up somewhere you never expected. And oh, my God, it's art and it's great. And then there are those plotting days where you get there and you're like, oh, that's great. But what the fuck? <laughs> and I don't remember yeah, what you asked, but I feel like
2: Yeah. Yeah, I was asking how do you deal with pressure? Like when you've had success. And then you
1: have to like laugh, I guess, and feel like, well, the same way that like, like, do you know Gabino Iglesias? He's been like tweeting like one-star reviews of books that just make me laugh. And remember that like, everyone's going to hate some things. Everyone's going to love some things. It's the, all the, you know, first grade stuff you hear, like the only person you can please is you and work with yourself and try and learn from your mistakes and all that cheesy shit. And just like, Put it on a pillow and stuff it in your head and go. Yeah, <laughs> right. for sure. So
2: you just have fun. Is that how we deal with it? Or just <laughs> I
1: feel like, yeah, having the fun and then doing the work and like yeah. enjoying the ugly and the pretty. Do you know what I mean? It's yep. like like all creative processes. Like whether you're getting a haircut or whatever it is, it's like some of it it's painstaking and other parts are like ooh and yeah. Yeah,
2: we've all had those nervous haircuts, but it turns out okay in the end. <laughs> like
1: <Yeah>. usually, <laughs> like when they're like, "This isn't it," and you're like, "No, this is it." I'm like, what are you
2: doing? And- so, one of the hard parts about writing is, you know, this elusive thing called voice. So, I'm curious, how did your emergency throat surgery and the resulting enforced silence help you develop your writer voice?
1: Oh my gosh! Well. It had been a very talky time. Like I had gone through personal loss of losing my father and it's going to sound silly to say these things in the same sentence, but then I had also uh, taken a leap of faith and made a short film, which was very like, you know, a lot of talking, you know, that was one of those, oh, it'll cost a couple hundred dollars and take a month. And no, they don't, it doesn't work that way. So I was in this like place of retreat and communicating on a notepad where I kept noticing, that the way that I talk, like tone of voice is so important. And it was like this hyper version of what it's like to text. And I kept seeing smiley faces next to what I was writing. And I was like, it's part like woman disease of like the need to like, I assure you, like, I'm not mean, I'm, I'm being, you know, making a joke. And, and that really made me aware of my own voice and kind of how we sound like how the way you sound in your own head. And that experience did prime me for Joe, because it was like, much as like, he's, he's always up to something. And of course, like there's the action in the world. It was so much for me, the writing experiment of like, can I get that feeling of when you catch yourself in your head, the way that you talk or the little things that stayed with you and come back to you that you don't always say out loud all the time. Like, can I get that feeling in there and can I do it in this guy? And yeah, so that those notebooks, like I would just look through them, see the smiley faces See the bad handwriting where it was like, yeah, it's useless if no one knows what you're saying, you know, like essentially you can't go out and drink and be mute and try and like <laughs> talk to a friend. Yeah.
2: That's so true. And yeah, the smiley faces, I always get it with the exclamation points. And then I get so mad at myself for using I know, and, the exc- and then the I see it
1: And then on the other side of that, you see friends that are like, oh, I'm doing this thing. Like I'm checking every email for smiley faces and exclamation points. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, can we just forgive ourselves and like say, I I feel weird when I don't put an exclamation point sometimes. I have no idea if the person on the receiving end feels that way, but like. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. And then I get mad at myself and take them out. I'm like, I'm not just going to like excuse this with exclamation points. It's going out blunt. (laughs) Right. And it's funny. It's where like I... (laughs) written communication like freaks me out I refused to text for so long like I was just against it and then I was turning 30 and I had organized this birthday party and I had a few friends but most people didn't show up and there was a mix-up with the bar there was a private something going on like a little problem but then I was like oh my god is everyone angry at me and it was like no I all I heard from people was I texted you but you didn't write back (laughs) because I they didn't call And then I joined the world of texting because I understood that like, okay, this is a way of life now. Like this is how it is, but it's the way that we have so much more communication where we're kind of responsible for things that happen naturally in a situation like this, where like in-person communication or face-to-face is like just so fundamentally different from the written word that can sound so different from what it means. And when we're so saturated by it and it's how I communicate now. Like I'm that class, I'm a total hypocrite that way that I went from like texting never to like, why is that phone ringing? Like (laughs) But I feel like all these things build up in us and make we're so unaware of how many little like different ways we have to mitigate and moderate and interpret and you know and cover and couch things and Yeah. (laughs) Keep up with like then when they're like, It's not cool to use a smiley face, like, oh for fuck's sake, I don't know. (laughs) Right
2: now it's like I can't use emojis now, my emojis make us old apparently. I'm like I don't know what to do. Now it just looks so stark, yes. I don't know, like I don't mm-hmm. everyone's going to think I'm mad at them. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and then you got to think about your language more, right? So.
1: Yeah, and then all of it is like the most common human thing. I feel like it all boils down to youth chasing, which every generation does. When then they're like only old people use gifts. I'm like, "Well, okay then. Like this is getting old. Then I'll use my gifts, gifs, whatever you call them and Yeah. I still like those. I use them like
2: yeah. daily. So that's tough. Nothing. I like guess it. I'm old and I'll just have to accept it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so you said that, um, at that time there was also, you were going through some things and you've said elsewhere that Joe is kind of a cancer who will survive everything.
1: Can you tell yeah, me a bit
2: I, more about that?
1: Yeah. It's funny. Like when my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer and that was one of those experiences where it, like he didn't tell us for a while, you know, there was that day where my family was together and my dad and my brother got in one elevator. My mom and I got in another. My mom and I are sobbing like the news was bad. It was like that basic this is stage four palliative like we and we're in separate elevators. We get down there. And my dad and my brother are like laughing, talking. My mom and I are sobbing. And I'm like, oh, my God, were we all just in the same room? And it was like two different approaches to handling emotions, life. And that kind of stayed with me. Like, what do you do? Like, like Joe is the cancer in the sense that he's always going to survive. Like when people will say, Oh, is he going, someone going to kill him? I'm like, no, that's the point that like you don't always know when you're up against cancer in human form in this form, or sometimes you sense it, but you can't resist the challenge. So you go in there, but most of the time you probably don't know, like, and that experience of like being so hyper-aware of choosing how to interpret bad news, I feel like is so much of where Joe came from. Where with Joe, like in the, on the one hand, he's a very positive thinker because everything bad, he's like, well, I can, you know, I can help you. I can help you make it good again. And it's almost as diluted as anyone battling cancer. And everyone's like, you got this, go do it. Like, well, no, you don't. Like... But how else? But would you rather go through the day like, yeah, having those moments? Sure, there are days of sad of like, you know, or you can en- enjoy that human spirit of there are miracles. And at least I'm in the moment and this is all there is. And yeah.
2: Yeah. So that's really interesting because, yeah, Joe is like he's just the most hopeful person ever. He's always hopeful things are going to work out. But he is a in some ways, but also his perceptions are so warped in some ways. Yeah. It's part of that.
1: Like one of my favorite movie scenes that stayed with me forever was Dumb and Dumber. I think really because I was in high school, it was like just so impressionable. And when she's, you know, when he's doing that thing with her and she's like, one in a million or like not whatever she says. And he's like, so you're telling me there's a chance, there's I'm a like, chance. that yes, <laughs> like, and we all know that like, we like that character because we know that feeling of like not wanting to hear no. And then of course the mixed messages of like, what is romantic about that? What is healthy of like, we hear all the time, like in your career, like, don't take no for an answer. Keep trying, go get them, go, 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 go. But now in relationships and in all things romance, it's like, Unless you have a handwritten note that says yes, like, watch out, bitch. Like-
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely true. Um, yeah, I really like, you know, his attitudes about a lot of things. Um, the social media and the gems and his attitude towards that. <laughs> Do you think that um,
1: writers need a social media presence or... I think like I think none of us know I think it's there like I like to see my friend stuff and hear about books like and I like that thing when you see a book cover and you become obsessed with it because you see it different places like right now for me that's yellow face I see that cover I'm like I want that book I want to touch it it looks good but I feel like we it's there it doesn't matter what I think if I think we need it or we don't because it's there and that's what's so weird about it do you know what I mean like for me it's like if It's like the way that it used to be that the library closed and that was it. It was closed. The bookstore closed. Now the shit is open all the time. So even if you're like, I'm taking a break or I'm taking an active stance against it, it's still there. So, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) like some people are definitely better at it or like enjoy it. It's built for their personalities. They're good at expressing themselves that way. Other people, I feel like that's where it's just you know, interesting. <laughs>
2: yeah. It can be such a distraction though. Like when you're supposed to be doing other things, have you ever struggled with that? Keeping off of social media or games or
1: absolutely. That's for, like, I feel like I have to be my own mother, my own, like put yourself in the corner. Like you don't need to walk. Like I like watching those ro- roller skating videos right now. So I, it's also weird the way it's such a, like a fucking drug dealer, the way it knows what you like. So if I go on Instagram, it's like here, it's all roller skating. Like And I, it's just a moment that I'm in of like, I like the music, the movement, I can't roller skate. And I'm like, why did this is so cruel. And I'm like, in a hundred years, they'll they'll study what this did to us. Cause it would be easier to walk away if it didn't know exactly what I want, but then you know how it is then whatever you're looking into, like, it thinks that that's your thing. And that's what, sometimes that can be beneficial. Yeah. No, I don't want this. This was something I was looking up like a charcuterie board or whatever, you know,
2: (laughs) Or I was just like, oh, that looked interesting one time. And now that's my whole feed. I yeah. get a lot of dogs, which I don't, I actually don't mind the dogs. The dogs are pretty
1: good. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. They probably lower the blood pressure and all that. Do. How do you manage it?
2: Not well. I wish I did better. I'm I'm very distractible. So, but I have, I do set writing time. So that, that usually helps. I'm like, no, this is writing time. I tell
1: them. Yeah. It's I'm like in the dungeon you got to go. <laughs> it's reminding yourself too of like how much better is it going to feel if I did those hours and did this and then, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Letting it be dessert. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so speaking of weird things, I want to know what's the strangest thing you've ever looked up as a writer and did you use a private browser?
1: i never you i yeah i don't i just google i'm like i'll assume that like i won't be suspected like dude there was that story last year the woman who did do like kill someone after all the googling um well i went to it's not a lookup thing but last year at one point with this book with wonder working at a dunkin donuts they have those ovens and i had had it in my head that she you know so going to this Dunkin Donuts with my brother and the guy was so friendly and it was pretty quiet and I'm like I'm right I'm a writer can I come back there and just kind of look around a little and he's like sure come on back and nicest man in the world I'm like can I see the oven he's like sure here's the oven I'm like can I see if I can fit in there and my brother's like no <laughs> the guy's like, no no and then I'm like no no no, no. and I, I knew that I could fit in there it didn't even happen in the book it didn't go in it but that's <gasps> what I feel like the internet also can do to you when you're used to looking up weird things and it's just you so like you're looking at this knife you're looking at you know burying places and you get so you know that you're that it's research but you bring that into the world a little and are like oh right like this nice man is already like letting me in and now I'm asking if I can go in the oven just (laughs) no like (laughs) so you yeah like like mostly yeah the usual like in on the computer the bury the burying bodies and i'll just i like those rabbit holes of like finding something you know and then you just fall 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 and
2: yeah you can get sucked down those rabbit in holes Idaho, a
1: it's taken up suddenly days of your life and yeah
2: have you found it, what's the weirdest spot you've ever found that someone has buried someone
1: Oh, well, i not, I mean, it was where I grew up. It's not the weirdest, but it was, you know, it's that thing of it's close to home. There's a motel where the guy buried his wife at the motel in the front yard. And that was pretty bold, you know, like when they, when they do it at home, like I guess in Marley and me, they bury the pet at home because it's like, yeah, it's your pet. It's your family. It's love. That's what you do. But when you kill someone in your family and bury them in the home, it's like, isn't that when you exactly when you take them to the woods or? Yeah, like that that is pretty
2: bold and you're probably gonna get caught if you bury someone in your yard. So yeah. pro tip, don't bury and someone
1: then, in your yard. No matter what you believe, would you want that reminder? Like, wouldn't you want them kind of away? Like, yeah. like I like in our house, we are, my cat is in the backyard. I'm like, Cookie was the best. So it's nice that, to think of her spirit out there if that's a thing that exists but if someone like broke it and tried to kill me, I wouldn't want them in the backyard. Like, no,
2: no, hundred percent not. They need to go far away. So I want to ask about the uh, references in your book. You've got a lot of like nostalgic and pop culture references. Um, Tell me a bit more about that. How you use that? Do you think it's kind of a shorthand to connect with readers? What do you love about that?
1: That's one of those things like that it started with that first book and it was always in short stories that like I finally came to terms with with myself that like whatever this is just how I write and whenever I tried to consciously not do that I was it was very like it was raining that night like I'd become someone else and I'm like it's not intentional it's not like I want it to be this way but it's kind of like accepting the way your brain works And especially then with these books that like, this is how it is. And then trying to like have fun with it or see where it goes. So, yeah, it's overwhelming because like in the beginning, like I remember being asked like after one book, like, did you have a list of things? I'm like, no, it was so spontaneous of like, as I'm writing that book. But then once in, I feel like in any series, like once your book is out there and it's established and this you've set up, this is like how this person thinks, how they operate, Suddenly it comes. So it's impossible not to like go through the world of like, how would Joe think about that? Would he know about that? Would I, you know what I mean? Like, and kind of deciding what he would think about things. And yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Cause I really enjoy it. Cause it is like a bit nostalgic, you know. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I love this. I forgot about this. And it's, it makes a nice
1: warm feeling. And, A book that's not a warm feeling book. I guess I mean I hope so. Yeah, because that I feel like I also think it makes him for me, it helps make him human. Yeah. Or like it's just this hopefully like not in your face, but like reminder that like he's, you know, watching shit and liking it. Like the white lotus thing in the book. Like I loved that, you know, I love the second season too, but that first season I loved so much. And it was like, Oh yeah, he, you know, of course he wants to know how it ends if he thinks his life is ending. Like
2: So I want to know what's your take on profanity in fiction? How much is too much?
1: That's another thing of like, not, I know, I, I, I don't know. Right. Depends on the thing, right? Like the way in some books, like it works, it doesn't like, I'm not where it's just a part of the flow and it's how they talk. And then in other books, when there's a sudden fuck, it's like, oh, (laughs) like it'll pull you right out. And that's where in these books, like, I don't, you know, I it's another like for me, I'm obsessed with the language and like Santino Fontana, who does the audio books. I kind of blame him for that because I've always like loved reading things out loud and the way they flow. So often for me, the profanity is part of the like, like the little symphony yeah. and hearing you do things makes me want everything to sound really, you know, to flow. But then I'm like, wow, there are probably like eight million bucks in this book. I'm, like, <laughs> Is that ever
2: like in the industry publishers do they care about that or is that we've never gotten any pushback on that?
1: I haven't on these but I feel like that's also you was my first book. So it was like one, I feel like it was that going in established, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know. Then it's it's it is weird that way about like how to me with writing a series where like, because I'm writing another thing right now and I feel very aware when there's an F word in there to the point where I say F word instead of (laughs) saying it. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like, yeah. yeah, when there's one in this thing, I'm like, Ooh, so yeah, I feel like each work has its own little set of rules and that's cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So as we're coming to a close, I have one final question. If you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring writers, what would it be? Do
1: it, just do it, <laughs> just like do it's it. the Nike shit of it. Like don't talk about, even talk about it, do it your way and stop looking for the answer because the experiment is the only way to find your answer. When you hear writing advice, apply it to yourself. If someone you love says that they work in a coffee shop, go to a coffee shop, sit there for two hours, see what happens.
4: This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, LaterPress. LaterPress is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. LaterPress is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at LaterPress.com.
2: So, do you have a preference for the writing process or having written or do you like both?
4: I love I I like writing. I write every every single day, 365 Rebel. days a year, sometimes 367. And uh it's just a it's cathartic for me. I Like I I have uh, I'm not good at math is what I'm trying to say here. Uh but I I you know, I I come to the page every day and it's I start with like journaling and things like that, you know, and that's my like warm up and self-therapy and that sort of thing but you know the the fiction is uh, has been a part of my life for a very long time i write a lot of nonfiction. basically any opportunity i have to write is is uh is a joy for me
5: yeah i get all twitchy if i don't do it i'm like a a, you know a druggie that hasn't gotten its fix, its fix so I have, I have to get in the chair. I, I skip Sundays, but mainly to hang out with the family. Um, but otherwise, you know, birthdays, you know, crap, I even ruined on my wedding day. Don't tell my wife, but <laughs> you know, I just, it's one of those things that it calms me down. It makes it, you know, helps keep me sane or as, as sane as I, I am on a daily basis.
4: Does your family notice when I you have I think they do.
5: Um, I mean, my, my, yeah, My, my mind, daughter I is yeah, more than more than once, like put me in my office and said, put, you know, like pushed me into my chair and said, make some words data and like walked away. So maybe she's she's onto to something. <laughs> like for me, it all depends on deadlines. You know, I,
3: I'm writing for somebody right now and it's a different universe when it's like, OK, you have to be done by X date and we rapid release. So there is no I don't feel like it today. It's no, you're going to do it today. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, it's like homework. You know, it's like, if you wait till the last minute, which I always did in school, you know, yeah, it'll, you're, you're going to get buried in that avalanche of work that is going to come like snowing upon you. But it's also, I think you're writing, it doesn't necessarily have to be keyboard or pen to paper, where it's like, okay, I'll be on my motorcycle. And it's like, okay, I was thinking really hard last couple of days, how I'm going to end this current book that I'm writing, and Sure enough it just kind of popped in my head as I'm but you yeah. never stop thinking about that stuff I don't think it's always going on
2: Yeah for sure I thought it was really interesting how she found her writer's voice when she couldn't talk and was realizing how she was writing to other people and you know how she had to help that with exclamation points or smiley faces and it was like oh that really made her think a lot about voice Have you ever had any real life experiences that have helped you develop your writer's voice
5: uh, First of all I can't picture her not talking Yeah. (laughs) That woman has, she has so much energy. (laughs) Like I, I, I wanted to hand her a cup of decaf. I'd like to apologize (laughs) to our (laughs) guest. (laughs) I mean, like, I I think she would feel like she was going to explode. You know, somebody like that, that is so used to communicating that communicates, you know, like it's, you know, like I I could picture the hand gestures going on and everything as she was speaking and like to all of a sudden muzzle somebody like that, like that must've been brutal for her to go through. Um, my writer voice, is, it's funny, and I, I see this when I mentor students, you know, like most, most writers, when they first start off, they sound like whatever it is they're reading or they do their best to sound like it. So if they're reading a ton of Stephen King, you know, they're trying to write like Stephen King and it's never anywhere near that good. Um, but, you know, they're, they're kind of mimicking that, um, you know, sooner or later, I, you know, especially with, with mentoring students, a lot of times I'll tell them to just write something in first person um, yeah, and treat it, you know, like, you know, Kevin, you had mentioned journaling it, you know, like it's, you know, that's a great way to, to find your voice because it's your voice and that, that journal. Um, you know, I think even there, though, people try to clean it up. They want to sound a little bit smarter than they actually are a little bit different or they want to, you know, they, they want to be J.D. Salinger, you know, in their journal. And like you, you have to let or that JD go. Barker. Yeah, J.D. Parker. You, you got to let that go. You <laughs> got to just let it be you. And I think once that clicks in your head, then you can write not only that, but you can write, you know, other characters, other voices that it all kind of comes together.
4: I don't think it's a problem though, that they try to sound smarter or try to, you know, I mean, I think that's, that's how you push your limits and figure out what works and what doesn't, and you know, the real key there though, is, you know, you don't typically share your journal writing with, with someone else. So you don't get that, that feedback, whether it's, you know, direct feedback or just sort of intrinsic or whatever. So I think, it, you know, if you want to improve your voice, you really should be writing something that other people are going to read. That's why I think something like blogging is probably a good platform for most beginning writers. Um, just take the idea that you're going to make money off the blog out of it because you might, but you probably won't. But if you can just build up an audience that comes back regularly to see what you wrote, you'll you'll really improve over time. Yeah. And I think you start or you should
3: get better and better at that. And you find your voice. The more books you write, well, and the more you write, period you should, and I think you should, you know, find that voice. And, you know, it's just some, it happens quicker than others. So, you know, sometimes
4: you have to have a little patience and, you know, your first book is not going to be the best. Well, here's my question. Do you write in a different voice depending on the type of writing you're doing? So like, you know, if you send a text message or an email or, You know, is it, is it all very different? Uh,
5: Email for me is my safe space. That's like the one place where I don't don't care about commas. I don't care about (laughs) punctuation or, you know, proper grammar. I just kind of throw it out there. Um, Text messages. I'm still, I I get tons of, you know, clip sentences and texts from different people, abbreviations, stuff like that. I I can't go there. Like I I need to put a complete sentence down when I, when I text somebody. Um, But I'm finding that that's changing too. Um, you know, I'm kind of falling into that that world.
3: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned dialogue.
4: I I I text in dialogue.
3: You know, it's funny you mentioned that because (laughs) I remember when texting was just starting, I'm old and I had young cops that were like in their 20s and 30s, and they're texting me and I'm like, No, call me. And they're like, No, Sarge, we text. And then I'm like, all right, fine. I'll text now because they were texting. You know,
4: that's- He wants to talk on the phone like a sociopath. Yeah,
3: I know. That's crazy talk. So
1: <laughs> let me worst. ask you
3: this t- to the group hive. Do you ever think a book is going to get written like the way you text, you know, with, you know, abbreviations and all
2: that?
4: Not. Oh, they've done that.
2: Oh, is, yeah, they been have. Done. Yeah. Yeah. I
4: hope I don't. Yeah. Are you going to? So much so that Vellum actually has now a uh, formatting for like text messaging and that sort of thing. Like you could do an entire book in that format now. So, Ugh, yeah, that's been, be yeah. It, <laughs> no. that's been done. Yeah. I don't want to read it. No. That's been done. I think that could be fun. You know, be <laughs> challenge.
6: There's even um, oh, what was it? I think it's I think it's Wattpad has a subsect of Wattpad that you read it as if it's text messages being sent to each other. So like it's as if you're reading it quote unquote yes. real time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even like an interactive yes. platform already exists with that. Well, so think a, think
5: about a book like Dracula, like that was actually written. You know, it's it's letters and and things like that going back and forth. So if you know Bram decided to write Dracula today, it it probably would be text messages. Yeah.
4: Oh man, yeah. with emojis, really cool. with emojis.
5: A new book yeah. for you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> little blood <laughs> drop fangs, <laughs> fangs droplets of blood. Yeah. Have, have any of you ever? <laughs> climbed, no crosses. Any of you ever climbed into an oven to see if you fit? Just for a book. <laughs>
2: No, but I was like, oh my goodness, what's going on with the research? I, mean, I am curious. So what's like the strangest thing you've ever looked up as a writer or the strangest thing you've ever done in the real world? Oh. You got anything good?
5: I, I've Googled, you know, like looked under the kitchen sink at the chemicals there and like Googled, like, what can I make of this kind of thing? Try to figure out what, what I can combine yeah. to make poisonous gas or do this or do that. Um, there's a famous yeah. story with Stephen King where he handcuffed Joe when he was a kid to a bed um, when he was writing, um, I guess it was uh, – uh, uh, Gerald's game. Um, and he asked Joe, like, can you flip over the back of the bed and push the bed forward across the room? And then his wife, I guess, walked in and caught them all doing this and <laughs> kind of shut that project down. Um, but, you know, you, I think you have to try some of these things, right? Because especially if it seems very over the top, you want to see if it's going to work. I, I've never climbed into an oven. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've done, you know, I, I could probably make a bomb out of half the stuff I've got under the
2: kitchen sink. Yeah. I've, I've Googled that too, which, you know, it's probably not smart, but I have. <laughs> yeah. Work. I don't know if we talked about this, when my husband's an attorney for the U.S. Army. So I'm looking up something and he comes up behind me one day and he's like, what are you Googling? I'm like, uh, <laughs> how to build a thermobaric bomb? He's like, don't do that. I like almost gave him a heart attack. He thinks ice is coming to the door.
4: <laughs> so I have to tell you, I, I will often, after a series of Googling things for my books, I'll, I'll usually Google... Uh, like a note to the, uh, you know, the NSA or something like, dear NSA, I am an <laughs> author and I am just doing research. I, I figure if they scan my history, oh at least gosh. I've got something somewhere. Yeah, I think
2: I don't know if I told JP this, but this week I put in a, a Google search that I'm. The internet returned the suicide hotline for me, and I was like, "I'm just oh, I looking get stuff yeah, up." Stuff like, like honestly,
4: that. yeah, I get those a lot. Actually, I think we're giving the
5: government too much credit. You know, expecting somebody to show up on our doorstep. You know, like, if, if you actually walk into an FBI office or a CIA office, like they're running, you know, PCs from like 1992. They're on Windows 95. You know, they're they're not piecing together anything that you're doing at home. You know, maybe NSA at that level <laughs> on you know two machines in a back room somewhere, um, but they're they're not coming after us. I mean, some of my google searches if they haven't shown up on my doorstep yet nobody's nobody's comment
4: well did you hear i mean when uh you remember when they had that bombing thing someone used a pressure cooker at the boston marathon uh and a woman ordered a pressure cooker like that morning or something and they showed up at her house to find out why did you order a pressure cooker are you are you the bomber and you know she and her husband both basically were detained over that mm. And Patrick, I'm. I think we keep interrupting you. I'm oh, sorry. that's
3: okay. No, I was just gonna <laughs> say I had 25 years. I had a front row seat to all the strangeness that you could think of, and then some. So I really don't need Google. I, you know, I just think back on my old days, and I have memo books back from 1995 with all the weird stuff that I've been through, and. So that's one good part.
5: I think the moral of the story is that they don't catch you in advance with this stuff, but they but they will use it against you later. You know, when when you're right. in a cell and they they you know grab your computer and look at your Google search, that's where it's going to
4: bite you.
2: So make yeah. sure you have a good escape plan. This is not <laughs> so. My things. strategy works.
4: <laughs> it still works. I leave that note in Google, and that's going to be part of my search history. That's my well, what do you call it? Your your alibi. Whatever. Your that's how I cover myself. Yeah, that's yeah. your alibi, Kevin. Yeah, alibi. Thank you. Former police officer. No problem.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. So as we wrap up, who's up next week?
5: Oh, next week, we've got a a really good one. We've got Dennis Lehane coming on. Um, Incredibly talented guy, author of Mystic River, Shutter Island, Gone Baby Gone. Uh, His latest book is called Small Mercies and releases April 25th. Dennis Lehane. Don't miss that one.
2: Sounds great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
3: Do you want to write crime stories that are accurate and believable, but lack firsthand experience in law enforcement? Join Cop Camp, the Cops and Writers Interactive Conference, and experience what real life police officers and detectives do through hands-on activities this June 1st through the 4th at the Fox Valley Police Academy in Appleton, Wisconsin. Limited class size of 30 to 40 students ensures an immersive, interactive experience. Attend firearm simulations, drive a squad car, solve mock crime scenes, and use real CSI tools and more. Register now at premeditatedfiction.com forward slash copcamp2023 and take your
0: crime writing to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.